Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're in a, at a period where there's a lot of change happening in the markets, means that uh, 2017 is not going to be for the faint-hearted. Hey guys, you know I love top of the show organ music and ad verbiage and loquacity, blah, 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 but there's no time to waste on this week's episode, because here with The Economist presents The World in 2017. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from London, Daniel Franklin, executive editor of The Economist magazine and editor of The World in 2017. Sir, how are you? Very well, thank you. I'd like to start with, you know, I, I learned tons of vocabulary words uh, from The Economist, as I've told uh, Zanny and Alexandra and everybody before. It, it exponentially increases my cocktail party appeal every week when I read it. So to the extent that you were doing this this time last year, could you have imagined if I had told you that 2016 would have ended with Britain voting to leave the EU, Donald Trump being elected president, the country kind of experiencing this, this Cold War-esque shock and intrigue of maybe the Russians rigged our election, you would have found these concepts risible, patently absurd, cod swallow, pish tosh, you would have said. <laughs> well, I, I could have imagined it, but unfortunately I didn't predict it, certainly in this uh volume last year. So yes, it has been an absolutely extraordinary year. And we actually had a, a collage of characters in on our cover last time round. And, uh, you know, two characters are conspicuously missing from that collage. One is Theresa May, because we didn't certainly didn't envisage that she was going to be Prime Minister of Britain. Um, and we, we thought that the Brexit vote would narrowly fail, uh, that, that Britain would narrowly vote to remain inside the European Union rather than decide to leave. Uh, and Donald Trump wasn't on our cover at all. So we thought Hillary Clinton, in all probability, would be president-elect by, by this time now. So it just goes to show a certain humility needed for uh, the predictions business. Do you think there was something uh, resembling connective tissue in terms of what happened in the UK, what happened in the United States, the, the fear of these populist blowbacks happening maybe at the parliamentary level in Germany and certainly in France at the national level and what we're seeing in uh, the Netherlands? Yes, I think there were, well, there was certainly uh, a sense of very similar forces at work to produce the Brexit vote and the Trump victory um, and a, a momentum that was eerily um, parallel um, on, on the actual flow of, the, of the, uh, the, the evenings when those results started to come through. And I think it will quite possibly flow through into 2017 as well. Um, we, we have a set of elections coming up which have the potential anyway to produce very similar shocks. Have you ever seen, I think looking at the domestic political situation here in the United States, a, a president leaving office um, almost at peak popularity, if you back out his first 100 days of office where there was a lot of hope and we were in the teeth of the Great Recession, but almost whiplashingly in a, in a 180 degree fashion, you're shifting regimes completely in D.C. You're going from a very internationalist, multilateral, um, trade-seeking, uh, 
liberal progressive regime to one of, of Trump's where for the first time in history you have a person with no political experience, a businessman coming in talking protectionism. It is rather whiplashing. I mean, it's, it's, it's binary. There's nothing in between. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's extraordinary. It's fascinating. And sometimes you do have to pinch yourself as you watch the incoming Trump uh, presidency and all the talk around it to, as you say, to remind yourself that Barack Obama is extremely popular as he leaves and America is actually doing very well in all sorts of ways, um, certainly by international comparison. And yet there is this huge, um, huge upheaval about to hit. Walk with me. I mean, if you take the Democratic Party or Obama himself, and I will get into the obituary you were you, you wrote oh. about beautifully, eloquently about his presidency towards the end. Is it a function of him being too professorial, too passive, um, that he he wasn't even a tenth as Machiavellian as some of his opponents were, who were saying never, no way, no way in hell the day he swore into office in early 2009? What went wrong institutionally? The polls completely got it wrong. The Democratic Party completely got it wrong. Yes, you could talk about the white working class, non-college educated voter until you turn blue in the face. But let's not forget, he's a person who won two resounding elections. He beat Mitt Romney in 2012 pretty handily. I mean, was it that much of a leap to go from Obama to Hillary Clinton? Should they have run Joe Biden, for example? Well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, what went wrong was partly what you were describing earlier, which is the swing of the political pendulum. I mean, there is, after eight years of one president... There is a natural desire to have something different. It's um, quite common for the the other party to then have its turn, uh, and I think. The but but Daniel, this were... is not a this is not a pivot or a modification. This is an outright repudiation. I mean, they will they will sack Obamacare if they if they can in their first two hundred days. Yes, so it it is a huge change. But but I think that you know what happened was that America wanted to vote for uh, change because after a long period of one party in the White House, that's a natural reflex. And the change on offer um, was certainly not Hillary Clinton. So I think they, the problem for the Democrats was that they had a, had a candidate who represented the status quo perhaps more than um, most other candidates you could have th- thought of, apart from the fact, rather significant fact, that she w- would, of course, have been the first uh, female president of the United States. Mm. Talk to us about the UK. Uh, that was certainly blindsiding when those results came in. And we saw uh, much the same way as the Electoral College was polarizing here, that there were regions in the country that were seemingly adamantly pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit. And because of almost these regional or, or um, provincial designations, you see something utterly earth-changing with uh, a multi-decade union that is going to be vexingly difficult to take apart. What, what What's the temperature? What's the state of play right there in London now? Well, one of the things that's interesting after the result is that uh, the argument hasn't stopped. A referendum that was originally designed to uh, really settle things, particularly for the Conservative Party. This was what David Cameron wanted to put to rest, uh, leader of the Conservatives. He hoped that this would um, put this behind him. And in fact, um, what it has done, uh, completely the opposite, it's set in process something, uh, a divorce proceedings that will last probably for years. And it's meant that almost every single issue in public life is viewed through the prism of Brexit or non-Brexit, Remainers versus Leavers. Uh, and it's carried on being this extraordinary divisive thing. What, one thing that you said, actually, I just wanted to pick up on, you said it was, uh, the polls got it all wrong. They didn't really get it quite wrong. It was always going to be 
close and the the poles were extremely close right at the end as well so although it was a shock it wasn't utterly unexpected in that um there were times when the the brexit vote seemed to have the upper hand people thought that in the last minute as usually happens in referendums it would swing back towards the status quo and that didn't happen and i think that's also a something we saw in the united states that towards the end things drifted away from what perhaps the pollsters were ex expecting rather than producing the result that that they had been predicting uh, from your vantage point across the pond, what do you make of our electoral process here in the United States, specifically the peculiarities of the, of the Electoral College, which emerged from the uh, particular ooze that was colonial America and the various trade-offs that we had to do to wrangle all these these different colonies and states together into one um, continuous, contiguous union? Um, is there any other system in the in the, I guess, the free world that resembles our electoral college here, where when all said and done, Hillary Clinton has a nearly three million vote popular lead on Trump, but Trump wins the presidency regardless. Well, I think it's worth remembering that we can have and have indeed had the same phenomenon um, here in my country, that in a parliamentary system, if you don't have proportional representation, uh, if you have first past the post, you can have a party that wins um, uh, less of the popular vote actually getting into power, and that's happened in Britain, and it's what's happened in America. So that is the system that you that you have. I think you play by the rules and you accept the rules. Most of the time, it doesn't produce that that oddity, and most of the time, it's um, it, it works without too much contention. But of course, it has in recent times been quite contentious. And a country as big as the United States, where it is this federal system and you're trying to balance the the rights of the states and the center and and feel inclusive of all parts of the country i think it is objectively very hard to have to to think of a system that works perfectly so you're you're doomed to have a an imperfect system whatever you do which will occasionally produce tricky results uh daniel talk to me about the perspective the scuttlebutt in western europe right now in, in terms of uh, trump's perceived proximity to vladimir putin and the, um, uh, I guess, the interference in the election and whatnot. What is the perception in terms of what this says for NATO's future or cross-Atlantic multilateralism, uh, the vestiges of the Cold War? I wonder what people are making of it. I mean, we similarly here have to read the tea leaves. We all follow Donald Trump's Twitter feed. If he gets ticked off at the Chinese, he says one thing in the morning. It's an international incident. He says something else in the evening. Do you have any, any other read or any, any kind of colder eyes on that than we do? Well, I think we're similarly fascinated and, and slightly nervous about what it's all going to mean, and it depends where you sit in the world, how immediately you might feel affected by this. Some of the countries closest to Russia's borders, which have been historically the most sensitive areas, uh, are particularly nervous. I th actually think that the uh, the places that are sometimes talked about as potentially vulnerable Baltic states, for example, at least in the short term, um, ought to be perhaps more relaxed than, than is sometimes imagined, because mm. the last thing I would do if I were Vladimir Putin is pick a fight or a provocation with uh, Donald Trump in the White House if there are advantageous deals to be done with America, which there might be, uh, as far as he's concerned. The, the danger to me is that this uh, this this budding relationship, um, if that's what it is, has the potential to go wrong. Uh, and you have to remember also that 
previous American presidents have come in uh, imagining that they're going to have a better relationship with Russia under their watch. Uh, George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Saw his and, soul, I remember. And Barack Obama <laughs> uh, pressed the reset button with, with Russia, but that didn't work out so well. So what happens over time when the real interests of Russia and America uh, clash? And that, that then becomes perhaps even more dangerous and volatile if it's, if it's started so well and then, and then falls apart. Daniel, as we look ahead to 2017, uh, we inevitably have to talk about the situation in Syria and the Levant, um, and Aleppo having just been sacked, um, Assad uh, and Putin and Iran to a certain extent, Tehran waxing victorious. What does this say for the kind of the new world disorder in the Middle East? After all, these borders were drawn artificially by European men and tribes uh, nearly a century ago, and and as they want to disintegrate right now and as the tribes want to go at each other again, uh, the cynical read is that you need a strong man, you need an SOB with an iron fist to kind of keep these borders together. Yeah, I think you're right. It doesn't bode very well for, for, for the region. Hard to be optimistic about about Syria or the neighborhood. I suppose there are one or two things that you could clutch at that might be slightly brighter. One is the loss of territory of Islamic State um, and the prospect that perhaps if there is a some sort of accommodation between Russia and America in fighting Islamic State, that could be um, a, a plus um, and, and that could could yield to um, results on the ground that, that would be better than where we are today. Uh, but it's... it's uh, also complicated with Iran, you mentioned, because um, another thing we haven't talked about is President-elect Trump's opposition to the nuclear deal with Iran. So the relations between the United States and Iran are newly up in the air as well. Well, talk about Iran, because you can argue that over the past 15 years, what with uh, uh, its its enemy, the Taliban, uh, the Taliban being removed uh, at its border to the east in Afghanistan and the Saddam Hussein regime being excised from Baghdad. Iran's sphere of influence, and now if you include Damascus, has kind of grown massively. Uh, is, this a, is, is this just because of the order of things, or do you think behind the scenes in the, in the real politic calculation of Washington, they'd rather have the Shiite state-backed enemy that they know rather than the amorphous um, ISIS cancer kind of growing across the Middle East? Uh, I'm not sure that that's a comfortable prospect for 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 America. I think it just is a, a fact that I Iran is a, a a powerful force to be reckoned with in the region. In fact, economically, as the the nuclear deal um, had the effect of lifting sanctions, um, you st you started to see some quite big um, economic dealings happening, particularly with European uh, companies, some of the oil majors here. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the intriguing questions is what happens to that if America starts to put in question the sanctions again and put in question the nuclear deal? Hmm. Talk to me about Chiron, which you coined, I think, in the yes. in, in this issue, the, uh, the inextricably kind of uh, attractive alliance between China and Iran. There's this element of, of mutual interest, what with resource utilization and trade and the construction of the metro in Tehran and infrastructure spending and the new Silk Road, but also this irresistible idea of kind of thumbing their nose at, at Washington together by doing something that would disdain many in D.C. 
So we talk about Iran really to, to describe the idea that, that Iran, which we depict as a sort of Iranian-coloured dragon, could be a sort of China in the region. I mean, it's not obviously not nearly as uh, big as, as China as an economy. It's never going to be as, as uh, powerful globally, but it can follow something of the same path um, economically in the region as China um, has, has uh, followed in Asia and indeed for the world a manufacturing powerhouse, enormous amounts of, of potential, but quite an authoritarian model, uh, state capitalism, uh, and uh, a lot of, I think, of business energy in about the place as well. Uh, but a centrally planned economy is as important as, say, what Beijing is doing with the banks? Well, I think a, a little bit, uh, very controlled, but I think a little bit of, of, of a free market, free-for-all below the surface. Is Iran ultimately just as good as the price of, of crude oil per barrel? We saw the enormous plummet to start the year and the volatility when the new normal was supposed to be triple-digit oil, uh, that this country's economy and its budget and its defense spending and, and social spending is is tied so intimately to that one indicator. Have they? Have, have you seen any evidence that they, they've decoupled their economy from the influence of crude oil or if they've reduced the influence any? Uh, not decoupled, but they do have a very big manufacturing uh, potential, and I think that is a distinguishing feature of uh, the the scale and potential impact of Iran. It is more than just a uh, a natural resources place. Talk to me, please, about uh, while we're in the Middle East, the Shiite Sunni um, disagreements and various uh, strange bedfellows and alliances. If you look at for example, Saudi Arabia and Israel claiming that they haven't been this close in decades, or Egypt under al-Sisi and Netanyahu, because the common enemy there is maybe a Shiite agitator in Iran. Uh, what, is the, what is the calculus of balance of power now? Well, the, the, my enemy's enemy is my friend, I think, is, is still remains a pretty, uh, pretty true um, axiom. Uh, and yes, I think you will get uh, strange alliances. And of course, Turkey is another important player here, where uh, whereby also the the Kurdish factor comes into play. So I think the, the no one is ever going to accuse the region of being simple in terms of the shifting stands of alliances. I wonder if you have anything that resembles a repeat of of ninety eight, where crude oil fell to something like ten or eleven dollars a barrel, and it really laid low. The likes of Russia and. Iran and Venezuela, and there was literally foment in the streets. Um, is there any evidence that, that that kind of situation could repeat itself? After all, there are secular things that are going on that you've covered quite a bit uh, in the magazine writ large, uh, the, the, the cost efficiency of solar, the broader uh, adoption of electric cars, things that could, uh, you know, the, the shale patch here in the United States, things that could really disrupt um, OPEC's long-held cartel. It's true that there are some very long-term trends in, in uh, the energy economy that are going to have deep impact over time, and in particular, I think, the rise of solar and the uh, use of, of, of technology generally, which is going to change things a lot. But I think in the short term, anyway, we after all, we did have a, a very large fall in the price of oil, which, which led to some quite deep impacts as recession in rather savage recession in Russia, troubles for countries like Venezuela as well, the big oil producers and uh, shifts across the Middle East because of the economic difficulties. But as of uh, as of late, the oil price has edged up again. And I think that is the prospect for 2017. We're not going to um, get a, a, a really dramatic drop in price. If anything, the reverse is going to, to be the case, a, a sort of recovery, which is going to 
probably produce some growth in countries like Russia and take a bit of the pressure off, although not right back to the sort of uh, boom days that we had a few years ago for them. Hmm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Economist Executive Editor Daniel Franklin. He's also edited The Indispensable uh, book, which you must have handy, The World in 2017. I personally enjoy it with Earl Grey and dainty cucumber sandwiches, but that's because I'm, I'm crazy and I'm trying to imagine myself reading this in London. But take me to markets, Daniel. Uh, there's been a prolonged period of central bank, I don't know if complacency is the term, but um, we've had, I think for the better part of a decade now, rates at emergency levels here in the United States. And you saw Europe follow suit and uh, with the EU, whatever we have to do. Um, you've seen the situation uh, in the UK this year after Brexit with the currency plummeting. Uh, to what extent is the world hardwired chiefly to the metric of interest rates right now? We have not, for example, had a true correction or bear market in the United States since 2011. I think a lot of people have forgotten the disruption of 2008 and 2009. Um, internet valuations are at sky-high levels. Uh, you can take a dead horse public in Silicon Valley right now. Uh, the prices for real estate in the Bay Area are incomprehensible. What's your read? Well, I think we're at an interesting stage because um, the markets have started to diverge a bit and reprice. So uh, the Federal Reserve has has um, had another move upwards recently, and it's signalling that it's going to have more in in 2017. Meanwhile, the, the in Europe, um, we we see no end in sight um, really for the the very loose policy that the European Central Bank is is running and also the same in, in Japan. So you, I think this divergence, which is probably going to run through 2017, is going to create a lot of volatility and we'll see that also playing out in currency markets and, and elsewhere. And uh, we're also seeing a repricing in um, bond markets in America. Um, so I think we're in a, at a period where there's a lot of... Uh, change happening in the markets means that uh, 2017 is not going to be for the faint-hearted. Now, China specifically has thrown metric, metric tons of money and government-printed money, and, and you talk about a debt mountain will loom ever larger over the economy since the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. And you've talked about gleaming new cities, largely empty, unbelievable bullet trains, the Pudong bullet train, uh, an amount of cement that I believe reading the stat over three years bested what the United States used in, in the entire 20th century. Is there a bill to pay for that? Is there a reckoning right now that you can only keep that going for so long? There is most definitely a bill. And at some point, it's going to fall due. But I think that point is not going to be in 2017, partly for the for political reasons, in fact. The, there's a very big political event looming on the horizon in China, and that's the meeting of the uh, party congress at Central Committee meets and the top jobs across the Central Committee and its standing committee of the Politburo uh, get, uh, get announced. Uh, that happens in the autumn um, and in October, and until then, there's going to be every conceivable effort to try and keep things running smoothly, throwing whatever um, considerable resources the Chinese leadership has to avoid um, a, any sort of great disruption to the Chinese economy. So, I, I, and, and there are, you know, it has very high reserves, it has a lot of firepower. Uh, so I think the bill is falling due. The, the um, problems, particularly the debt, is mounting up in China. 
but it can be a number of years yet uh, before it before it actually um, causes extreme disruption. I'm going to quote from that excerpt. China's total debt has soared to more than 250% of GDP, nearly doubling over the past decade. Increases of that scale usually presage a major slowdown. If not a crisis, for the time being, China will keep a lid on those problems. I don't understand, Daniel, how you keep a lid on these things artificially. Do you just – how does it work mechanically? You take foreign reserves – shovel them through the banking system, uh, prop up government-run banks, and they make construction loans. I mean, can you give us like the 30-second elevator well, pitch of central panning in China? Des- <laughs> you've described it pretty well, and also you control uh, a lot of the banking system as well. So, yes, you you pump money into the system if it seems to be uh, in danger of, of uh, collapsing in, in various places. And you have a lot of money uh, to pump. They have enormous firepower. They can also prop up businesses, prevent them from going bankrupt. It's not quite as, as brutal as it, as it can be in, uh, in a, uh, an American system, for example. But sooner or later, uh, the money can flow out actually frighteningly fast if you're not careful. And sooner or later, the bill comes even um, too big for a, for a government like China's to, uh, to resist. And eventually, um, unless there are deeper and bigger reforms, and those are painful politically, eventually um, something has got to give. But I think they can keep, they can put off that moment of reckoning for some time to come. Now, if I'm Peru with my uh, copper exports, if I'm Argentina with soya beans or beef, if I'm any other uh, developing economy that is really super linked to China's wealth, I mean, you talk about the Philippines, you talk about Bangladesh, uh, Iran, which we had mentioned beforehand. Are those the more accurate reads on China's health if I see indications of export slowdowns that that suddenly you're seeing a collapse in raw commodity prices that are linked to Chinese construction? That's one read on China's health, but you have to remember that China's economy is also uh, changing in its model of development. So it, it's a it's a measure of the health, if you like, of the the old China economy, which China itself is trying to move away from and move towards a more consumerist um, uh, model with with services much more important. Uh, and that type of uh, economy, which relies much less heavily on the piling in of resources, heavy investment, massive increase in manufacturing, um, that is going to be growing more slowly. Uh, so it is a measure of the 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 switch in China, but it's not the whole story because there's also at the same time the building up of the new China, big technology giants such as, I don't know, Didi, the the Chinese Uber, if you like, or WeChat, that don't re- rely on such heavy use of resources, but are tremendously important for the future of the country. What do you what do you see for the currency in China? I mean, there have been surprise strike moves where you see a you know, a 10% uh, movement in the in the acceptable band of the currency. It, it is, again, very opaque. Uh, but it has been our lament, especially with Donald Trump now uh, ascending to the Oval Office, that China is a currency manipulator, that it in no way is subscribing to the, the proper, you know, international rules of supply and demand and floating your currency and being a fair trading partner that it dumps. Uh, how does this all bode for its export relationships, say, with the United States and Europe? Well, I think it means that there's a danger of there is really a danger of a of a trade war, really over the currency question, and it's going to be very tough to to manage this one, keeping it within bounds that don't cause damage, great damage for everybody, because um, the temptation, particularly with the strength of the dollar, we're seeing the dollar move very high, 
um, and 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 that is going to potentially damage American uh, exporters. The temptation to have um, uh, some sort of retaliation against a country like China, which is perceived as um, certainly in the Trump White House, will be perceived as doing um, perhaps not behaving um, uh, as it should on the currency front. That could very quickly get out of hand. The the hope might be to do some sort of deal, in, in as is the Trump way, but the Chinese are going to play very hard on that front. And it's very easy, I think, to um, underestimate their determination to um, and, and, and determination to play a very long game, not to be tempted by short-term deals. Daniel, we've had uh, the prominent Sino-skeptic James Chanos, the hedge fund manager on the show previously, and he was telling us that this is, is, is truly an unprecedented house of cards. We've never seen anything approximating a hard landing uh, with the, the, a China that is as internationally important as it is today. I mean, post-WTO China. There was the 1997 uh, Asia slowdown and 1998 slowdown, but for the most part, China has been growing uh, for 25 years now. Do you worry when you make these year-ahead issues that kind of – that is the big cosmic event. That is the big meteorite that's going to crash into the planet at some point, that China is going to land hard. And that could lead to all sorts of disruptions, whether you're talking about treasury buying in the United States, uh, uh, rancor in the streets, something approaching a Tiananmen potentially when the country is this big. Um, a, a destabilized region of the South China Sea. I mean, do you, do you ever wonder about that scenario? Yes, I do, absolutely. And I think the difficulty is when you do these year-end things is precisely that you worry about it year in, year out, and you end up, if you're not careful, sounding a little bit like uh, the person who cried wolf, that you're saying, well, watch out, this could happen, this could happen, and then it doesn't happen. And the, probably the one year where you say, actually, don't worry about it is when it actually does uh, happen. And uh, the, the, the so-called hard landing in China has been one of the high risks on the horizon really for some time now. I think my colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit who spend their time doing economic forecasting um, view this as the biggest, the biggest economic risk and put it as a, something like a 30 or 40 percent uh, possibility. So they don't necessarily think it's likely to happen, but it's a serious threat to, to, to consider. A year ago, I think it was much the same. People worried about it. If anything, even more a year ago, things calmed down somewhat since. But as long as I've been uh, doing this and looking at China closely, the talk of a hard landing has been has been there. It hasn't happened yet, but at some point, it probably will. And so we become inured to it, and then we look elsewhere, and then it sneaks up on us in three or four years. <laughs> well, it sneaks up on us, and then everybody says, wasn't it obvious? Shouldn't you have been telling us about this? Which, of course, people were, but not the great difficulty of predictions is not just to, to give a, an event, but a timing for the event and to get that right. And if you get it, uh, if you keep on saying it's about to happen and it doesn't, people switch off. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, you want to talk about crying wolf and crying wolf being discredited. Everybody's been writing about this impending doom in the bond markets, this 35-year bull market in bonds, that inflation's back has been broken. It was done by the Paul Volcker Fed here in the United States. And this is going to be the year where rates creep up and there's hell to pay and um, you know, small-time punters are going to realize that they could actually lose money in fixed income. And that never seems to happen, especially because the United States is looked at as that primary readout of safety. If anything goes wrong, even if we don't have the greatest fiscal situation here in the United States, the world piles into our debt, thereby bringing rates down. 
Yes, um, but I think there is going to be a worry now that particularly the who knows how the policy will actually play out, but the potential scenario of combination of uh, tax uh, cuts in, in America and higher spending could uh, could bring back some inflation, and the Fed is going to be raising rates probably partly as a, uh, a, a to try to keep that under some sort of control. So I think we could be seeing a shift now. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be one of the one of the intriguing markets to watch in the year ahead. If you are the administration coming in, and he's had people like Bannon, his controversial advisor, and some of his um, his economic kitchen cabinet uh, telegraphing that if the world gives you these low, super long term interest rates, it's it's an invitation. It's begging you almost to spend to partake something that resembles a, a you know a. Um, uh, a new deal or a civilian conservation corp or Tennessee Valley Authority. I mean, if the money's there, go and spend it. A little inflation or maybe a modest amount of inflation in the United States would not be so bad right now. We have no bond vigilantes really pointing their guns at us. We're we're really the envy of the world monetarily and even even fiscally, even though the situation is not great, we're still growing. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And obviously, uh, it's not only the... The, the incoming Trump administration who were in favor of a, a bout of infrastructure spending, that was that was also something that, that Hillary Clinton wanted to do as well. And it does, I think, make a certain amount of sense. I think austerity has, uh, uh, has perhaps gone too far. And if you look at a lot of American infrastructure, it's hard to argue that it couldn't do with a, 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 a bit of investment in some of the airports and some of the roads and so on. So I think, uh, yes, it does have a lot to say for it, the difficulty is making sure that it gets spent on projects that are really going to make a difference and aren't just pet projects of particular uh, special interests. Daniel, take me to Latin America. And we've we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about Venezuela and how long can this uh, regime, I mean, Hugo Chavez has passed away. His cult of personality has left the world with him. Uh, but Nicolas Maduro, in his wake, is kind of... Uh, he, he's overseen this disastrous uh, uh, failed state where people going over the border and, and transacting in kind of apocalyptic toilet paper terms and crazy, bizarre arbitrages and cash controls. How are they keeping it together? And, and what of the, the future for kind of the leftist soul of, of Latin America now that Fidel Castro has you know, met his maker? And uh, it's a kind of a, a strange paradigm over the past decade. One of the most striking numbers, I think, in in the world in 2017, our publication, is that the forecast growth rate of the Venezuelan economy, or rather the forecast shrinkage rate, which is 8% negative growth um, for 2017. And I think that uh, speaks to the troubles that Nicolas Maduro is going to be uh, having, carry on having in in Venezuela. He's, He's got an economy that's imploding. He's got a lot of political anger and opposition to cope with. And I think what's uh, actually rather extraordinary is that at the same time as you have the rise of populism that we've been talking about in uh, much of the rich world, you have pretty much the opposite trend happening in um, parts of Latin America, where they've had their uh, experiences with strong leaders, with, with Caudillo, particularly of the, of the left, mm-hmm. as you say. And they're rejecting it now. They're moving in the opposite direction and want them out. Um, Cuba is going to be, I think, also fascinating. Uh, it faces the transition um, 
post uh, Fidel Castro, but also towards 2018, where Raul Castro, the current president, is is due to step down. So there's a lot of of change happening across the region. We've seen uh, Argentina moving in in the direction of having a um, a very different sort of government now old economic reforms which should start to come through and and, and produce some results in 2017. Mm. What about Brazil? Brazil has obviously had a terrible time of it. Uh, it, it it's um, had a recession. It's had a, an impeachment. It, it's had a full-blown pr- political crisis. So it, it's hard to see that being turned around quickly. But at the same time, I think the, the economy might look up a little bit just because of the recovery of raw material prices. Hmm. But take a hard shift, uh, Daniel, if you will, to one of the columnists that you brought in was the CEO of YouTube on a new world of watching. And she began the essay with, not long ago, I was in a hotel room with my children rehearsing a speech I was due to give some advertising executives. The speech detailed how I saw the role of TV changing with the emergence of online video. I argued that TV was at the center of the world I grew up in, but that online video had taken the central role in today's world that TV used to play. After I finished my speech, I asked my children who had been listening what they thought. Quote, I don't really know, Mom, my son said. I don't watch TV. And this is something that I struggle with a lot. Uh, As I I lecture at journalism classes, I meet people in their 20s. No one out there could countenance paying for a pay TV package right now. Um, They are protective of their Netflix accounts. A lot of them share logins of their HBO logins of of, of, of YouTube, of Hulu. And meanwhile, I think about all of the advertising money, all of the production money that is still hardwired to this, this, this business of kind of capital-intensive, cable-intensive, people dutifully paying $100 to $150 a month to watch this on, on their TVs. And I sense that enormous disruption is on our doorstep. That's right. And I think it's also it's the same sort of disruption that's happening in, in my own industry of, of, of print media, which is moving rapidly towards digital and, and the old world of, of advertising, which is shifting um, tremendously as well. So the whole media world is, is, is undergoing a, a great upheaval. And uh, I think from the point of view, the good news in this, the, the, there's a great temptation to talk, as it were, from the producer point of view and think, isn't it terrible? It's not, uh, things aren't what they used to be. But from the user point of view, it gives tremendous choice, tremendous uh, possibilities and tremendous freedom. I think you refer to that article. One of the main points that was made in that article is instead of being tied to a particular television schedule that there was is, is decided upon by television executives people can watch um, whatever they like whenever they want uh, and that allows them freedom of when they want to watch things and also creates programming opportunities creates uh, a market for things that might never have had a market before so opens up a creativity having said that though i've never recalled paying anything less than a lot of money for an issue of The Economist. When I was in college, I had a I had a student subscription and whatnot, but it was my willingness to pay several dollars an issue for that premium coverage for uh, that 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 deep down read and unobtrusive ads and everything. And I also got that sense from HBO. If you wanted membership into that to watch The Sopranos or watch Lord of the Rings or or The Wire, you had to pay for it. I'm not convinced that. Uh, most of the channels on public TV have convinced people that their content is is worthy of kind of a la carte payment. Maybe they just take for granted that it's part of a bundle, it's part of a package. But when the rubber meets the road, if somebody had to pay you a la carte for your show, they probably wouldn't. Well, I think there's a 
tremendous opportunity for different types of business models. Uh, thankfully, people are still prepared to pay uh, often for copies of The Economist, so that helps to keep us in, in business. Uh, people are sometimes prepared to pay also for for quality, good quality television and certainly for, for films as well. But there's also different business models of, of uh, free delivery, advertising, um, advertising supported. So I think there is uh, opportunities also for great niche players who find markets around the world uh, for, for niche interests that you would never have found in a particular national audience. So there's there's just a great um, uh, uh, upheaval in what is the business models and indeed the, the types of the ways that content is being produced. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us from London is economist, executive editor Daniel Franklin. He's talking to us about their special World in 2017 issue as we look ahead to the new year. Uh, I'd like you to take us to Africa, uh, which is by no means monolithic. It's one of the big mistakes that Westerners make is, is thinking that this massive, massive continent of you know thousands of tribes and so many different languages can be looked at through one lens. Uh, but we do have spheres of influence. I mean, South Africa is more of a developed economy in the South. It has its own issues. But Nigeria has often worried me after I, I visited a decade ago. This is a country that's really tied to the fate of oil, but my impression is that it's kind of barely kept together in spite of tribal differences, in spite of regional violence. Uh, you know, you've had several correspondents report from Lagos, and this is a megalopolis, which is, I guess, built for 13 or 14 million people and has 10 million people more than that. And it's almost a, a metaphor for the country can at some points seem really prosperous, at other points can be on the verge of falling apart. I think that's absolutely right. And a, a couple of years ago, we had this um, Nigeria hitting the news because due to a statistical revision, it suddenly leapfrogged South Africa to become the most, um, the, well, the biggest economy in Africa and a huge and very dynamically growing uh, population. And ever since then, pretty much, things have seemed to go wrong. They, they've They've suffered a terrible insurgency in the north and the oil price fall hit them very hard. Uh, and a new president coming in, hoping to to crack down on corruption, which is terrible in in Nigeria, uh, has had very mixed results, and the economic reforms haven't haven't been as helpful as one would have liked to see. So, Nigeria is a, a, a country that has extraordinary potential, great ingenuity. Um, not just oil; it has some some rather dynamic startup um, businesses as well but still much too dependent on oil and, and particularly I think the the security situation without uh, without better security and and a firmer hand on corruption it'll never live up to its proper potential now uh, in terms of one bright spot I'm quoting from your um, article here in fact 17 countries accounting for about a quarter of Africa's population will be net beneficiaries from the commodity slump because of cheaper energy their bubbly economies, many of which are growing at 5 to 10% a year, are bursting with innovations such as mobile money, private schools that teach children for less than $6 a month, and cheap solar cells that give people in rural villages enough electricity to watch a television and charge their phones for just a few dollars a week. In many parts of Africa, renewable energy is now growing faster than the fossil fueled sort, giving Africa a chance to leapfrog straight to clean power and freeing it from the vagaries of gas and coal prices. I, I mean, most of these countries that I visited always seem to have, even South Africa had rolling blackouts 
There were grid issues. And that's something that's really transformational akin to telecommunications where kind of mobile came in and, and completely leapfrogged over the need for landlines and the human development index is solar. Uh, solar prices collapsing, bringing this into villages, say, in the bush uh, where you can capture the sun's the sun's rays and not have to worry about placing capital-intensive lines. I mean, those could be huge game changers. They could. And the, and the, the, the idea of leapfrogging, I think, is particularly important in, in, in a continent like Africa, which has a dreadful traditional in, in infrastructure in many uh, areas. And, and telecommunications is a very good example. It's not just the telecoms. It's not just the, the mobile phones that suddenly connect people and help people know, for example, what farm prices are going to be. It's also the way that that enables people to, through small mobile um, payments through um, companies like M-Pesa, uh, enables them to to become to join the banking system and to join uh, to join the, the the full economy the full market economy. If something like that happens in energy as well, and there's uh, technologies for for providing just the bare minimum of light for enable people to to work in uh, what are otherwise the dark hours, that can make a huge difference. Talk to me uh, about cash and uh, the, the, hopefully the disappearance of cash. You've seen huge strides. If you visited places like Kenya, which you wrote about in this issue, or South Africa, if you go to certain um, uh, uh, townships and slums, people do get paid now over their cell phones. It's much, much easier, less cumbersome, safer than carrying cash, uh, that you could have a cell phone to cell phone peer economy. What is the evidence of that happening both in the developed world and the developing world? We've had Apple, who's kind of been almost a hesitating adopter of of, of smartphone payments, but it seems anachronistic for us to carry cash anymore, both from kind of the, the armed guard perspective and bank deliveries and sacks of cash. What are some of the strides that the world is kind of making in terms of uh, adopting this on the smartphone? That's definitely the way the, that things are moving. I mean, through contactless payments, through through various sorts of payment methods. China, is, and you didn't mention, is another area where that uh, is coming on in leaps and bounds and people are paying um, through, for example, uh, WeChat, all sorts of uh, innovation going on there. And I think actually uh, I was I was there recently and was, was very impressed by uh, the speed with which that has developed and perhaps the way in which in some respects these sorts of innovations are in advance of what we, we know in the, in the so-called developed West. Um, but you can move a bit too fast if you're not careful. And a good example of that recently is what India has just tried to do by withdrawing the highest denomination bank notes very, very fast. About 86% of the currency in circulation um, has has been withdrawn without properly preparing the ground, it seems, by printing um, other lower denomination notes. So that that's partly an attempt to speed up this whole process of getting people into the banking system, encouraging electronic payments. But it can be extremely disruptive if you move too fast. Is there a tipping point where suddenly, at least like say in the United States, a bunch of retailers realize, well, it's not worth our while to fight this anymore or insist on people paying with our own apps. Seed this to Apple uh, in terms of multi-homing, in terms of the network effects of the, the smartphones that are out there, it's pretty much an Apple-Android duopoly. I think you, you'd start to see tipping points in certain uh, areas. I mean, if you take the London Underground here, you pay in contactless cards. If you get on a bus in London, you pay in a contactless cards. I think more and more, 
um, there are going to be areas of life where cash is not taken, where you have to pay by card in some form or another or by phone. Uh, and then who the winner is, and that's a, 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 another story, who who the technological winner is of that big, is obviously a huge, huge market for contactless, contactless payments, cashless payments, uh, and, and who ends up reaping the benefits of that in terms of companies that find the, the, the best seamless transaction for it. Uh, that's the question still to be determined. But it is, I think, this fr frictionless payment is something that's on its way and because it, 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 it makes so much sense. Mm. Uh, Daniel Franklin, talk to me freestyle. Uh, whatever you think is 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 being short shrifted with the outlook ahead. I mean, this is such a dense, wonderful issue, and the the sheer diversity of guest columnists that you brought in, in addition to your own correspondence. What are some things you'd like to highlight? Some stories that you think are potentially going to be huge next year? Well, I think one or two things perhaps worth highlighting. One is the um, some of the anniversaries coming up in the, in the year ahead. I think. Uh, uh, are going to be in the news because they speak to the spirit of the times. So 500 years next year since Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg Castle and in what was, I suppose, the social media of its day went viral and lo and behold you had a a, a, a Protestant Reformation and a, a split in, in the Christian church. Mm. Um, the anniversary of the Russian revolution, the um, Lenin's 1917 uh, revolution, I think that will uh, reverberate still a hundred years on um, because people will look to the parallels between the conditions then and the rebellious what does uh, the, Let me ask you, does now. the Russian street not get pissed off under Putin? I mean, what is it about the, the, the empty calories of, of nationalism and revanchism that people don't seem to heed massive income inequality there in the reign of the oligarchs as much as you think they would. Well, there was some nascent protest um, a few years ago in Russia, and it was stamped on pretty hard. So the Russian street, um, like, for example, the Turkish street, can get pretty uh, can get pretty angry, but then um, authoritarian regimes uh, seem to be able to repress it fairly effectively, and that, I think, is what, what has happened there. So... Uh, it's it, what you say. I think is is particularly apt because Putin will have to decide how he deals with this anniversary of what was a rebellion against authoritarian regimes. So on the one hand, there'll be a certain nostalgia for uh, the Soviet Empire and and what uh, what Lenin actually uh, ended up leading to in terms of a great power of the Soviet Union, but no particular fondness for the overthrow of an authoritarian regime, which he himself has. How emboldened do you think Putin is by the outcome of the, I guess, the situation in Aleppo and Syria and that apparently being resolved in his favor? Uh, Barack Obama prevaricated uh, with the red line and Putin stepped in forcefully. Iran stepped in forcefully uh, with its militias, with its paramilitaries. And they have a client state that's largely been reconstituted, even though arguably Syria is a failed state. I think he'll be enormously emboldened in the sense that he think he will see this as a Russia uh, counting in the, as a great power in the world visibly again. This is something that I think uh, was a sore for Russia that it didn't have the respect, it didn't have the uh, recognition of its great power status for a number of years, and now this is where it's really uh, come back um, in a very high-profile way and showed that its military muscle and its ability to act uh, decisively 
where others don't is a great potential strength for it. So yes, I think he'll feel emboldened by it. It certainly plays well at home that uh, to see strong leadership and a strong Russia. What do you think about the State Department pick here in the United States and Rex Tillerson, the CEO of the massive multinational ExxonMobil? That, that seems to indicate a kind of a new frontier that you didn't put a pure diplomat in that role, that you put um, effectively a, a multinational as nation state and uh, the United States' chief negotiator yes. now, its chief diplomat was a CEO. There will be questions asked about his relations with, with uh, Russia in particular uh, in, in, in his business role. Uh, but I think it's of a piece with what Trump has been trying to do generally, which is to be a change, to be unconventional. And uh, in this particular case, he's obviously um, you know, a very talented I- I- executive who knows the world pretty well. So it'll be, it'll be like most things, I think, that we've seen with Trump. It, it'll be different um, and it will be um, perhaps energizing to see how it, how it plays out. Daniel, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd love to talk about the obituary that you wrote for the Barack Obama presidency. And not that I'm, I'm, I'm morbid by nature. I just love your obituary writing. I mean, I think you did one with a, with a, a playwright and comedian who passed away alongside a turtle. Uh, this was a while ago. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable license. And sometimes I turn to the obituary first before anything else because the writing – the irony, the attention to detail, the winking is there. It's like everything that I love about The Economist in, in, in one page. Talk to me about this obituary for the Obama presidency now um, in its final month until the inauguration. He gave his last uh, speech, what, in the his international speech in the briefing room the other day. And I think your essay kind of embodies the mood, at least in the Democratic Party, that there was so much promise, so much rhetoric, um, so much charisma but we were constantly told to, to hold on, to look ahead, to be uh, dispassionate about these things, to be adult-like. And I think the criticism now is that he kept deferring. He kept pausing. He kept uh, you know, looking the other way. And this was an answer to the perceived cowboy presidency of, of George W. Bush, 43. But did this pendulum swing way too far in the other direction? I think the first thing I should say is, is to say, pay tribute to Anne Rowe, who is our obituaries editor and who wrote this obituary of, of uh, Barack Obama's pauses, but also uh, is week in, week out. I, I will send who... her a box of black roses, if you like. <laughs> well, I think you're not alone to read The Economist from the back and to enjoy the obituary uh, particularly. Um, so I, I think that that's, uh, it, it is an extraordinary thing, not just, I, I think, for the choice you, you know, you have one a week where you, you choose which uh, person or, or, or in the case of the turtle animal to, to pick on, uh, but, uh, but how you write it. And it does sort of capture the essence of, of the subject. And I think this is a very good case in point. So what is go- the, the idea? Shall I tell you a little story about how we come to write an obituary? In the, By all means. What, it, what is, in fact, in a forward-looking publication. So, yes. Uh, it's not an obvious thing that in a, uh, something that looks at the year ahead, you can at all write an obituary. But uh, one year, my colleagues uh, decided to do a survey of what people would like to see or reactions to uh, the publication. And they used the traditional template of all the sections that were in the regular economist. Would you like to see more on America, on Europe, on business, on finance, and so on. And they included obituaries. More death, Franklin. More death. Give yes. me more death. So I, I said, this is ridiculous. You can't use this form. But it was too late. It had gone out. Sure enough, readers ticked that they would like to see more obituaries. So oh, I took that as a challenge. 
And I said, okay, we've got to start having obituaries in the world in. And uh, ever since then, we've tried to look at, um, you know, something that's going to be disappearing in the year ahead. And that gives a nice um, license, you know, whether it's a you know baseball stadium that will no longer exist or a president who's no longer to be, going to be president. So this year, Anna lights on, you know, how do I write about, uh, about Barack Obama's presidency? And I think it's a brilliant idea to say, well, actually, it's his pauses that say so much about him. It's the way that he speaks. And this is something, it turns out, that has been studied uh, by by academics. You have, you know, a group of Turkish uh, professors of linguistics who've written dissertations on the subjects and others who've studied the, the precise numbers of pauses in a typical Obama uh, uttering compared with others and so on. And it does, I think, say a, a lot about the deliberate nature or deliberative nature of his uh, of his time in office, um, both on the on the positive side and in some cases on the negative side as well. It has been a disastrous regime if you look at the net losses that the Democratic Party took. We've had your DC editor on in the past, and and the midterm elections were catastrophic for the party in 2010. Um, you know, state houses redistricting, redlining, and whatnot, and looking ahead to the census, and now suddenly this trifecta of White House. Both chambers of Congress after a presidency that on paper is supposed to be hugely popular and he leaves with enormous popularity. Something doesn't connect. I think it's hard to argue with that. But I think, um, you know, we'd probably be having a very different conversation in two years time after midterms if if there's a big backlash against um, against that uh, trifecta and that that uh, across the board control by the Republican Party. So. These things do swing one way or another, and um, and I think we will see a swing back at some point. But it can't be it can't be a comfortable thing for him. Not just the loss of uh, of, of democratic control, but also I think, as you were saying earlier, the the prospect that a lot of his own legacy will be undone, unpicked uh, as a result of that. Whether it's whether it's healthcare or or, or whether it's um, policies on immigration uh, and, and so many other areas. Hmm. I do read from the obituary, and you said Obama said he had drawn a red line over Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons in Syria. The weapons were used, but the red line disappeared. The heavy role of commander in chief was clearly a torment to him, demanding many and copious intakes of breath. For better or for worse, as with Hamlet, quote. The native hue of resolution was, quote, sicklied over with the pale cast of thought. Is he, I mean, it's almost like an embarrassing question to have. Was he too cerebral a president? Was he too much of a thinker? Should he have acted on more atavistic impulses? When we saw children writhing from mustard gas attacks in Syria and he drew a red line and then and then allowed that red line to be crossed and then moreover for, for someone like a Vladimir Putin in Iran to fill the vacuum of leadership. I think that will uh, certainly, for, uh, as of now, that looks like his 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 greatest failure and a lack of decisiveness abroad, which translated into a sense of of American weakness, which was itself a reaction to um, excessive gung ho ness um, in in under the previous regime. But I think you have to remember actually where Anne begins her obituary that he came in saying, "Yes, we can." Uh, with a very seemingly uh, decisive uh, message, and that had to stand the test of eight years in office. So I think that's the way with all uh, politicians. They get tested 
um, and reality tends to be harder, tougher, uh, more challenging than they expect when they come in. Daniel, how will history judge him? What will be his ultimate impact in, in imprimatur if you look back? I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is not going to be easy to take apart, certainly in one or two years' time. Uh, there's already a tremendous amount of consternation uh, in the Republican House over, we can't just take this away and not put something in there, even as a stopgap. Uh, what's going to be his lasting legacy when you look back on him? Well, I agree. I... I agree that it won't be as, as easy to totally dismantle um, his health care reform, so perhaps some of that will remain. Um, perhaps uh, he will be perceived to have handled the economy reasonably well, after all, under his watch, although the economy didn't exactly take off. It didn't fall back either, and America steadily has recovered. Uh, and I think that the, the sense of... Uh, of steady hand at the top, but above all, uh, the, the one thing that will, I think, historical achievement that as the first black president of America will remain someone who who dignified the office, the office, uh, despite a lot of uh, attacks throughout his time on him. Um, but I think the backlash at the end will also be there as well. The fact that he didn't manage to translate this into a lasting democratic legacy. Give us your closing thoughts, Daniel. Uh, look into your crystal ball for 2017. And when we bring you back in a year's time, what would you think have been the biggest surprise, the biggest yawner, the biggest sleeper, um, things that uh, we'll look back and say in 2020 hindsight we should have paid more attention to? Well, if I if I had that Heinz 2020 Heinz, I wouldn't be a magazine advance. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would have said so in advance. But I think you know, events are always what take us by surprise. Events happen. Events test. For example, a new presidency such as Donald Trump. It may not be the known things that 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 we can see coming. The relationship with China or Russia, but something completely that crops up and he has to respond to and uh, produces some sort of crisis that could easily. Uh, end up being one of the most important things that that happens, but which we can't foresee. Uh, but there are the the tectonic plates that that are shifting the whole time, particularly in things like technology. And I think we're going to carry on seeing extraordinary developments in um, in in medicine, in computing technology, in robotics, artificial intelligence uh, that are going to throw up um, changes in the way the way work the world works, and also ethical problems because they. Uh, they, they are, in some cases, changing what it means to be, uh, or threatening to change what it means to be human. Mm. Daniel Franklin, executive editor of The Economist and editor of The World in 2017, my final question for you is, is I love your magazine so much. I read it so much. I wonder, if no one in London has invented it, is there a drink called the Zanny? Is it something that we could concoct <laughs> here? We're here in Richmond, Virginia, which, after all, was named after a district in London, um, could we get dibs on that? Uh, well, it's. Uh, I, I'm it would include pims or beef eater gin. You, I don't know what the base would I'm, be. <laughs> I'm delighted you enjoy it so much. But you know, one of the strengths uh, of of that we've had, I think, down the years, is that um, we we are not uh, person personality uh, driven. We are anonymous magazine still, um, and uh, we we don't uh, we don't hide who we are, but we we speak 
collectively with the voice of the economist. So I think you'd have to probably call it something else, but I, I hope it would go down equally well. To that end, we were joined by Anonymous, executive editor of The Economist and editor of The World in 2017. Daniel, I'm so grateful. Thank you very much indeed. Full disclosure, John Valentine is our beloved engineer. We are on NPR One, iTunes at FullDRadio.com, Acast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Twitter at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio, and holler if you'd like to sponsor, because I know you'd love to sponsor. Hey, we take euros. Pound sterling, loonies, naira, bitcoin, and tikka masala. Internationally known and known to rock a microphone, I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next year. Uh-huh.